want to invite you, if you don't have your if you do have your Bibles this morning, to turn there with us. If you if you don't, I would encourage you to maybe use your phone. I know that there are some apps and different ways of accessing the Word of God, but I would love for you to see the truths as I uh, teach them for the value of um, your seeing that they come from the Lord and His Word and not, not, they're not just my words. Last week we dealt with somewhat of an overview of the book of Colossians. We're uh, studying and unpacking the mystery, if you will, what's known as the mystery of Christ in the book of Colossians, which, which consists of three things, if you remember from last week. The first thing is, is that everything is in Christ. The second thing is, is that Christ is in you. If you're a believer, Christ is in you. And the third thing is that you are in the church. And that's really the mystery that runs from the beginning to the end of the book of Colossians. It's not just Colossians, but Colossians really um, set next to the book of Ephesians is considered a sister book. Uh, Philemon is another very short uh, one-chapter book in the New Testament that is considered to be somewhat of a parallel to the book of Colossians, although it's much more of a, a narrative than it is a um, didactic teaching, as we see here, where we have some very specific instructions. Um, but those are some books that really kind of walk side by side together. But this is a mystery, and uh, anybody that that would tell you that there's nothing mysterious to everything being in Christ and then Christ being inside of you and you being in the church is they they don't they're not being completely honest with you because that is a mystery and I know that we accept it right we believe it by faith we accept that it's true but but there's a lot of mystery to that and just the reality of Christ living inside of us is 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 pretty much an an unbelievable mystery Right? Why would he take residence inside of us? And yet he does. The Bible says that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is where he dwells. And we can't explain why he dwells there. Um, we just know he does. And it's, it is his, in the same way that God's presence dwelt in the temple in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's presence dwells inside of each one of us. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And with that as a reality, although we know, again, it's a mystery, you're never going to believe that based on science. You're never going to believe that based upon somebody convincing you through some kind of intellectual bantering back and forth, and they're gonna, you're going to convince them that uh, there's a spirit living inside of you that's not yours. This is not stuff that comes from the intellect. It's literally something that comes from faith. It is literally believing in something that is completely impossible, right? So call us crazy. The Apostle Paul was called a fool for Christ's sake, and he wasn't ashamed of that because it is crazy. The Lord even says that, the, that when you take the gospel into consideration, the world's wisdom looks like what? Foolishness. And so guess what our wisdom looks like to the world? Yeah, you guys are so smart. I'll just sit down and we'll be done and we'll go home and we'll be in great shape. It's foolishness, right? This is a mystery. It's not understood without the, without the help of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. 
I mean, literally, the, the presence of the one who is the mystery is the one who explains the mystery and makes it, uh, I think, believable, although not always understandable. I think sometimes as Christians, we're so interested in understanding everything that by the time we get to the point of understanding it, Satan has already come in and swept away the seed that was sown, and there is no seed there anymore, and there's nothing to understand, because we're, we're spending all of our time trying to, trying to grasp something where the Lord says, obey. The Lord says to submit and surrender and to do, do what's right. And we're like, well, I want to figure it out. Well, the devil will explain it to you. He will, and he'll just make it so confusing that you'll never be able to take it. So the mystery in Colossians is, is, is simply that. Everything that you need for life and godliness, everything such as forgiveness and redemption and righteousness and hope and peace and joy and happiness, and I could go on and on and on for hours, they're all captured in a person. They're all in Christ. Christ is those things. You can't have those things in a, in a what we would call a, a, an honest way. People try to, you know, climb over the fence like John 10 says and get into the fold, but they're ultimately not a part of the fold. You cannot get all of the benefits of Christ without having, without having Christ. That's why he says in John 10, you have to enter at the gate. Well, who is the gate? Jesus is the gate. He is the essence. It is in, within his person that everything that you could ever need or really truly want, and not in a fleshly carnal way, but in a spiritual way, is, is fulfilled in a person. And it's a, it's a miracle for you, to, for you to be able to believe that and not believe it, just believe it, willy-nilly believe it, but to believe it as a, as a, man, I really believe that. That because I have Christ, I have everything. And I don't need anything more. And there's other things that he's going to bring our way, but, but, but yet those things are only secondary to the fact that we have Christ. And there are lots of benefits to having Christ, but you can never seek the benefits if you seek the benefits without seeking the person, you'll miss the person and you might get the benefits. And we see that all throughout Scripture where people were blessed. And the Lord reigns on the just and the unjust, right? You may get what you're looking for without getting what you're looking or what you need. That's the mystery. Everything in Christ, Christ in you, which is what salvation is, it is not you becoming a better person. It is not you figuring it all out. It is you embracing the person of Christ as your Lord and Savior and him taking residence in you. God now looks down from heaven and now sees you in Christ and sees Christ in you. He accepts you because he's actually accepting whom? He's accepting Christ. That's the way it works. It's all about Christ. And then what does he do with us? All in him, he in us, and us in the church. This is his expression. This is his way of showing the world around us that this is what it looks like. And we can do a bad job of it or we can do a good job of it. We can take it seriously or we can take it lightly. 
But this, honestly, is a part of the mystery. As a matter of fact, the book of Colossians really climaxes with the church. The mystery is great, but you will see all throughout, he's like, because of this mystery, you should be living this certain way. You should be doing these certain things because you believe this mystery is true. So that's the mystery in Colossians that we uh, unfolded last week a little bit. This little just analogy that uh, hopefully will spark some, some thinking as we move through this. So think with me this morning. If you are getting ready, does anybody in here like a mystery? I think I asked that question last week. Some of you like mysteries, whether it be a movie or a book. You like to open up something and you like to read a mystery, something that's going to kind of unfold in front of you. So if you are getting ready to read or watch an unbelievable mystery, meaning a mystery that was so much a mystery that it was impossible to believe. If you are getting ready to read or watch an unbelievable mystery that the author said was a true story, okay, you follow, you tracking? What would it take for you to believe the author enough to order your life by this mystery? What would it take for you to believe the author who was getting ready to write a mysterious book that is beyond comprehension? What would it take for you to believe that mystery enough to order your life by it? See, that is what the Word of God is calling us to. That is what not just Colossians, but the whole of the New Testament is calling us to. It's calling us to believe a mystery enough to order our lives by that mystery. And the mystery itself is unbelievable. I I will tell you, I will submit to you this morning that there are thousands of people who claim to believe the mystery of the gospel, but refuse to order their life by it. Because that's asking way too much. What the Apostle Paul is telling us is the gospel, by in in embracing the gospel, you must order your life by it. You can't embrace the gospel without ordering your life by it. That is the very essence of the message. So therefore, the Apostle Paul starts off Almost every one of his epistles spending a great deal of time introducing himself as the author in these letters. His reasoning behind doing this is that if the congregation doesn't trust him, they won't listen to him and they won't accept his teaching. The Apostle Paul was very diligent in making sure that he himself was not a misrepresentation of the message that he preached. He knew, he says that in, in 1 Corinthians 9, towards the end of the chapter, he says that he buffeted his own body so that he would never become disqualified. In other words, Paul knew that if he became disqualified in his preaching, that his message becomes disqualified to the people. And he's not just asking them to believe a mystery. He's asking them to order their life by it. It would be nothing for us to believe a mystery, right? 
and then not order our life by it and then one day reject that mystery. That wouldn't make that, wouldn't be too bad, would it? But imagine somebody who believes a mystery, orders their life by it, I mean, lives their life for that mystery, and then one day decides to reject that mystery. That becomes a big deal, doesn't it? You think about what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection is not true, right? Is the resurrection a mystery? (laughs) Is there a greater greater mystery than somebody that's dead getting out of the grave? If the resurrection is not true, the Apostle Paul says we are all most to be pitied. It's like sad sorrow for us because we believe something that didn't really happen. But what makes us pitiful is not that we believed a mystery and it didn't come true. What makes Paul's message all the more serious is that they ordered their life by it. They actually lived as if the resurrection was true. And if the resurrection wasn't true, then you can say, that was pitiful life. I wonder sometimes, I, I, I think about this for my own, for my own self, evaluating my own my my own life and think to myself, if somebody, if all of the things that I believe would be untrue, would somebody look at my life and say that that person was pitiful? Have I ordered my life so much in accordance with God's word that if it all turned out to not be true, that somebody would look at me and say, what a pitiful life? Because that's what the apostle Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 15, that their life was so ordered that if everything that they believed in became untrue, they would be considered pitiful people. So, the Apostle Paul seeks to earn your respect, to earn your faith in him so that you will accept his message and and act upon his message. In an article recently I was reading about trust and communications, the author says this, trust is a powerful force that builds loyalty, increases credibility, and supports effective communications. It gives the benefit of the doubt in situations when you, when you want to be heard, understood, and believed. And if you think about it from the standpoint of a soldier, a soldier must completely trust in his commander so that he can unquestionably and immediately follow his commands. Imagine a soldier out in the war and the commander gives, a, gives an order and the soldier's like, yeah, you know, I don't really know if I trust the commander. He may not really have his stuff together. That soldier not only puts his own life at risk, what does he put the whole platoon? What does he do with the whole platoon? They're all at risk, Right? Because he didn't trust the commander enough to act immediately on the information that was provided to him. He had to trust the commander enough to respond to the commander in an unquestionable, immediate way so that the task could be accomplished. Athletes are the same way. I can remember our kids uh, running. Uh, I'm specifically going to talk about track and field, but when they're running track and the coach is you know, on the sidelines saying, okay, you need to increase your pace, they, they can't say, well, I'll, I'll do it in two more laps or I'll wait until I'm ready to do it or let me evaluate and see if their advice is really that good. They, they have to trust the coach enough to submit to him in the moment and act upon the instruction that he's been given in complete 
submission to him. In the moments of life where there isn't time to evaluate, process, and meditate, and a quick, and a quick decision is demanded, trust is necessary. So what does the Apostle Paul do in this first eight verses? What he does is he establishes trust. And I want to just look this morning at five things, five reasons why we can trust the Apostle Paul. And really, that's what we're being asked to do. We know it's in the Word of God. So therefore, it's God's words as much as it is the Apostle Paul's words. But we're being asked to trust the Apostle Paul in such a way as to give our lives to the message that he's delivering to us. We're being asked to change our lives, to conform our lives into the image of Christ on the basis of this, of this one apostle who wrote more than half of the New Testament. So that being said, we have a, uh, I think he does a, a good job, the apostle does a good job of earning our respect and the respect of the recipients by presenting himself in such a way as to prove that he's worthy of their obedience and worthy of their submission this is a, uh, just kind of on a side note, this is a real challenge for our culture today because our culture is not submissive oriented. The word submission is seen as an evil term. And it's not just in the family that the word submission is seen as evil, but in the church, submission is also seen as something that is evil. We want to find the church or go to the church where submission is not asked for or required. There's no commitment, there's no devotion when when when. Uh, instruction is given. There's no expectation of people to obey or to follow because nobody wants to be that guy, right? And I and I know how that feels because I don't often want to be that guy. But um, but it's something that what we're going to see this morning is something that is profound in our culture today. Is something that's very very relevant to us. Is that we don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told what to do. And the Apostle Paul is getting ready to tell these people what to do. He's getting ready to instruct them and expect them to obey. And, and he's, and he's going to tell them, this is why you should listen to me. And so I just want to give you some thoughts this morning, these, these five thoughts, five truths from this text, I think that will help us um, embrace this. And somebody told me that the parade goes until noon and that all of our roads are blocked off, so we can't go anywhere anyway, so... Hope you brought your pillow this morning. I'm, I'm only kidding. I just, scared, I just scared the nursery workers. I know that. <laughs> My wife's going back there to encourage them. <laughs> it's going to be okay, nursery workers. I'm just kidding. All right, let's read together in Colossians 1. Uh, Paul starts the letter off just describing, just uh, with his name, not uncommon to his letters. Um, we know who wrote the letter and who it's to. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. One unique, just real unique thought that just to consider here, um, this is, this, uh, Paul's, all of Paul's letters start off with this phrase, grace and peace be to you from God, our Father. But every other book, it says, and from our Lord Jesus Christ, or some phrase that gives a reference to Christ as being the giver of the the gift. And this is the only book that doesn't have that. And it's interesting because it is truly, I think, um, 
meaningful to this book because Christ in this book is not the giver of the gift, is he? What is Christ in this book? He is the gift. So the emphasis on the Father being the giver is something that you see throughout the book of Colossians and not Christ. You see Christ as being the son of the Father or the gift of the Father because really in in this book, specifically in Paul's epistles, he's referring to himself or as being what we receive. And in in all the other ones, he's he's seen as a, a giver of things. He says in verse number three, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So there are five simple principles that I want you to to think about this morning as you consider whether or not you should believe the Apostle Paul and whether or not you should ultimately believe God. And again, it's not, the, it's not a head knowledge that we're referring to. It's truly a heart knowledge that you, say, that you say in your heart, I choose to order my life by God's commands on the basis of the fact that he and his messengers are trustworthy. Now, I'm not asking you to do something that you can just decide in your mind. I'm asking you to do something that you must decide in your heart. I'm asking you to do something, and the Apostle Paul is asking us to do something that's going to take total commitment to Christ. It's going to cost you. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to be perhaps a struggle, a difficulty. You might lose friends in the process. But what the Apostle Paul is calling us to is are we willing to trust Christ enough to order our life by his word? Are we willing to trust him enough to order our lives by his word? We love the benefits of Christ. I'm just afraid that we haven't yet embraced the person. So let's look at what he says here. The first thing the apostle Paul refers to is his calling. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He just points out a few things here in this first phrase. Number one is that Paul's authority came from God. Paul was a messenger. The word apostle here just means one who was sent out. And it's interesting because the word apostle is used throughout the New Testament. There's a there's the capital letter apostle, which is the 12 apostles, including the apostle Paul, who was added later, kind of 1 Corinthians 15 talks about him being born outside of time or being born... Um, after the rest of the apostles were born, but then there's a lowercase apostle. And it's interesting because the Lord refers to all of those who are in the church as apostles. We're apostles. It means that we're being sent out. That's what the Great Commission is. Go into all the world and preach and make disciples. We are apostles. We're sent out ones. And so the Lord says here, um, 
The apostle Paul says here that his authority came from God. His, his commissioning came from God. He was sent out by God. He was appointed by God, commissioned by God, empowered by God, enabled by God. Everything that the Apostle Paul needed came from God. So the the Apostle Paul saw himself as one standing in the place of the Lord and ministering his word and his message to his people. That's how the Apostle Paul saw himself. And his prayer was that the people would receive him in that same way. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul's message would mean very little. Paul's authority resulted from the one or came from the one who had commissioned him. It's almost like you could think of it this way, that if you were commissioned, if if, if someone were to come up to you, say somebody that was very insignificant or unimportant were to come up to you and send you on a mission and you were to go there and, and you were to maybe stand before somebody important and say, hey, well, you know, Steve sent me to tell you this. And that person might say, well, well, who is Steve? What what does Steve matter? And that Steve better have a very good reputation if that person is going to listen to your message because you're building on the basis of Steve, right? On the other hand, imagine if the president of the United States sent you on a mission and he gave you a seal and you said, you you know, just show them this seal and when you show them this seal, they'll, they'll believe you because you're coming as a representation of the, of the President of the United States of America. And your seal will make them list, they'll respect you on the basis of that seal. And okay, the President of the United States is a pretty big deal. Just imagine your favorite president, okay? Don't, not any specific president. Imagine your favorite one this morning, and you get the idea, right? So now imagine God sending you on a mission and saying, carry this message for me to the world around you. And you don't come on your own authority and you don't come on your own wisdom and you don't come in your own might or your own strength, but you come in the authority and the, in the, and the strength and the wisdom and the might of the one who has sent you. Do you remember when Moses asked the Lord when he was going to gonna go to speak to Pharaoh and say, set, you know, set my people free or let my people go? Do you remember what Pharaoh says to the Lord? Who, who do I tell him sent me? And that's the, mo- the next phrase is one of the most powerful phrases in Scripture where the Lord tells Moses his name. Remember what he says to him? I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Is there any greater authority than that? I mean, it's like he could have said I am strong, or, or I am wise, or I, but no, just I am hath sent me. In, in other words, Jesus Christ is, is uh, God is transcendent of all things. He's bigger than all things. His authority is greater than all things. So when the Apostle Paul comes in this moment and he says, I, I want you to know, Church of Colossians, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ and I am an apostle by the will of God, what he is saying to them is my authority comes from God. He has commissioned me, he has sent me, and he has given me the message that I am to to say to you. All of these things are from him. So we don't have to come in our own wisdom, we don't have to come in our own authority, we don't have to come in any of those things if we're willing to use the tools that God has given us, which obviously, in those days, God spoke directly to the Apostle Paul and he had the Old Testament scriptures. But in these days, God speaks to us through his word, right? 
And he tells us, here's two things I want you to do. Number one, obey what you hear from my word. He tells us in Hebrews, uh, uh, not Hebrews, it's uh, Romans 12, I think it is. He tells us to prove his word. In other words, you're to live out his word so that the world around you can see that it's true. It really works. The world should look at our marriages and say, man, there's something unique about their marriages. What is it? And we should be able to say to them, it's because we've done it God's way. The world should be able to look at our children, our jobs, should be able to look at our lifestyles, should be able to look at our stress levels, should be able to look at all of those things and say, say, what's unique? And we should say to them, it's because we've done things God's way and we're doing things God's way. And God's way works, doesn't it? God, I mean, let's, okay, God's, ways, God's way works, doesn't it? Isn't it no different than when Daniel said, I will not eat the diet that the king has gave, given me. I will eat God's diet because I will prove to the king that God's diet is better. Daniel wasn't rude. Daniel wasn't inappropriate or, or, or attacking of the king. He just said, king, let me prove to you that our way is better. We, we have to attack because we can't prove that our way is better because we have very few people that have embraced God's way. I'm not saying we don't have very few people that have embraced God's word. I'm saying that we have very few people that have embraced God's way of living, of doing life. Paul's authority came from God. And not only Paul's authority came from God, but Paul's message came from God. It was not his own message. It was the message of the Lord. Listen to what he says in Galatians 1, verse 11 and 12. He says, I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then you're familiar with 1 Timothy 3.16, which says all scripture is breathed out by God. So Paul's authority wasn't his own. Paul's message wasn't his own. So he comes to them, not necessarily asking them to trust him, but really what he's asking them to do is to trust, he's asking them to trust God and trust God enough to obey him. So first of all, he talked about his calling. His calling, his commissioning, all of these things, his, his, his truth, his message, all of these things were from God. Let me read one other verse to you I think is, is, is important for us understanding this. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says it this way, And we always, or we also, thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, when you heard it from us, you accepted it, not as the words of men, but truly as what it really is, the words of God, which is that work in you believers. That, that truly is the goal. Even when I come up here on Sunday and preach, my heart is not that you will receive the words of John Purdyman, but that you will receive the words of God that you'll understand and see them as coming from God and that you will, you will follow them and submit to them, not as being from me, not to honor me, not to be submissive to me, but to be submissive to God. 
Because God is the one that matters. He's the one that we are accountable to. And he is the one who purchased us with his own blood. And he is the one who deserves our obedience. The reality of it is, and the Apostle Paul points this out in in his writings, that we owe no man anything, but we owe God everything. And the devil teaches us that we owe men stuff. So we go through our life trying 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 to pay men for what we think we owe them, and God says, you don't owe them anything. They didn't do anything for you. I did everything for you. And that's the Apostle Paul's message. So, so the first thing that he points out is the fact that he's an apostle of Christ. He's sent by Christ. He's a messenger of Christ. And he comes by the will of God. It was, he was there because God placed him there. That God had planted him there. So that's a pretty good reason to trust his message, isn't it? He, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm stretching a little bit, probably not, but that's a pretty good reason to trust the message of the Apostle Paul, isn't it? Because it's from God. And what God says is true, and it's accurate, and it's it's going to come to fruition. So, the Apostle's calling. Number two, he points out his companions. This was a secondary evidence to the integrity of the Apostle Paul. He points out two men to the church here at Colossae. The first one was Timothy, who we find at the end of verse number one. And then in verse number uh, seven, uh, verse, verse number seven, we're introduced to Epaphras. And we don't know a lot from Scripture about Epaphras. We know quite a bit about Timothy. But what we do know about both of these men is that they were familiar to this church. It is likely that Epaphras was either a pastor or a messenger to this church at Colossae. We know, according to chapter number two, that Paul never went there himself. He basically preached in Ephesus, and he, he had a revival in Ephesus for three years, and many, many people were converted. But off of that, many churches were started in the surrounding towns and areas, and Colossae would have been about, I think, 100 miles from Ephesus. And so you have a likely a, a man named Epaphras who was um, converted under Paul's ministry and then went to Colossae and started this church and pastored this church and, and maybe even traveled a, a little bit to get these messages from Paul and, and bring them back to the church. We know that Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus. Apostle Paul established the church, but we know that Timothy was the pastor there. So Timothy would have been someone that they would have known, they would have been very familiar with. But here's the emphasis. The emphasis is this, that the Apostle Paul saw himself as somebody who who was not known by them. He saw himself as somebody that was foreign to them. So what does he do? He points out two other godly men who said, Paul's a good man. Paul's an honorable man. Paul's a respectable man. So the Apostle Paul points out these two, what we would call companions, to show the people that his message was an accurate and true message. Let me say this to you. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is you need to, 
you need to understand that the reason why you have a pastor or pastors in your church is that you can study them. You can know their character. You can know their family. You can know their heart. You can know their, 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 their lifestyle. You can know these things. That's why 1 Timothy 3 is given to us to show us the character of a leader in the church. And the Apostle Paul even respects that enough to say, even as an apostle of Christ, I'm going to present to you two men who know, who you know their character is upright and godly, and yet they affirm me. And the apostle Paul builds off their reputation and not off of his own reputation. We know that the scripture teaches us that an issue is not affirmed without how many witnesses? Two or three witnesses. The apostle Paul doesn't reject that either. Honestly, I think when I look at this text, I think, listen, the Apostle Paul could have easily just said, I'm a messenger from God, deal with it. Would that have been enough? But the Apostle Paul's heart is to get the people to trust him because it does take, there is a human element to this thing and to bring them in so that they will listen and believe. So Timothy and Epaphras were two men who they knew and they probably respected. They probably had a, 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 a great reputation and they had put their approval on the Apostle Paul and therefore, based upon the recommendation of these two men, the Apostle Paul is asking this church to trust him. In our world today, we have a, a, we have a plethora of preachers, right? You turn your radio on and you listen to a certain station, you will find a preacher that you like. You can pretty much find whatever preacher you like. The question is, do you know their character? Do you know their lifestyle? Do you know anything about them? So why is it that you're putting your weight in their basket? And the Apostle Paul makes it clear that I'm, I'm asking you to put your weight in my basket on the basis of your pastors who have proven themselves to be respectful and honorable men. And I'm asking you to trust me on their behalf because they are proven. So the Apostle Paul uh, um, appeals to them at a, what I would call a fleshly level to bring them into hearing, submitting to, and obeying. We go on, and that was his companions. The third area in which the Apostle Paul points out here is found at the end of verse number two, where he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The third thought is his care. What was the Apostle Paul's motivation in asking the people to follow him? What was his intentions in asking them to obey him? What was his desire for them? That's what he's saying here at the end of verse number two. What was Paul's desire for them? That they be what? That they have grace and peace. How many of us like the idea of grace and peace? The Apostle Paul is going to present to the church something that's very hard. It's a mystery. It's going to be very difficult and very challenging for them to receive and understand and obey. But what he says to them is, I want you to know that I'm presenting these things to you because I care about you. I want you to have what's best. It's like a a parent with their child telling them instructions and giving them guidance and direction that's not sometimes easy to receive. 
Any of you kids ever have your parents do that to you? Any of you parents ever do that to your kids? Maybe that's the better question. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. is He's saying, at the very get-go, I want you to know that my heart is for you. My goal is for you to have good. My goal is for you to have success. My goal is for you to, 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 to strive forward. My goal is for you. I want you to be full of peace, and I want you to be full of grace from God the Father. I want these things for you. And I, I believe that the Apostle Paul understood from a, from a human level that when people know what your heart is for them, that they're likely to embrace the message that you're preaching. And I believe that the devil is one of the greatest deceivers. He, he told Eve in the garden that God was against her. Think about that for a moment. The devil convinced Eve that God was keeping things from her that were good for her. Was God keeping things from her that were good for her? But Satan convinced her that God was keeping things from her that were good for her. So what did she do? She forsook God and embraced the devil. The lie is is that that, that the Lord is keeping things back from us. The truth, listen, the truth from God's holy word, the truth from God's mouth, the truth from God's messenger is that God's desire for us, God's plan for us, God's purpose for us, God's passion for us is that we have peace and grace. It's not that we be destroyed. The thief cometh not but for to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus has come that we might have life and we might have it more abundantly. Listen, that's the truth. Satan is whispering into people's ears all of these lies. And if you embrace these lies, it will destroy your life. You have to get back to the roots of things. Stop following how you feel about things and how Satan is manipulating you. And start following what the word says about things. I mean, I'll be honest with you this morning. You can't even trust yourself in these things. You have to go to something that is objective. And the objective truth is, is God's word. And God says, I'm on your side. Trying to help you. I'm trying to help you figure it out. If you follow my path, there'll be success. I mean, that's a promise in his word. We were talking in our community group about Psalm 1 last week. And those who delight in the Lord are like trees planted by the rivers of water. They bring forth fruit in the season. And whatever they do, it prospers. I mean, that's a great That's a great poem, right, that somebody wrote that didn't know what they were talking about. Or is that truth? The reality of it is is we probably don't know anymore because no one is proving it. No one has believed it enough to embrace it, that that's the heart of our God for us. I think of the first verse of that Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. A direct parallel to the Lord being our shepherd is that we will be satisfied and content. He cares for us. He tells us, cast all your cares upon me because because I care for you. But yet we, we hold him close to our chest because we don't believe what he says. 
his goal for us is that we be full of grace and full of peace. Listen to how he defines grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Believe that? You may have to wait until the next life to, to inherit these things. But the question is this, do you believe them? I believe that when the devil tempted the Lord Jesus Christ, he tempted him in such a way as to say to him, I will give you now what you rightfully have in eternity. And his goal was to get Christ to forsake the things that were eternal for the things that were now. And I believe the same temptation he's placing in front of you every day. Embrace the now so that you can have all that you want in this moment. But he never tells you that you're going to be losing out in the end. And man cannot serve two masters. There isn't a, I will have both. And then peace, peace with God and peace with other people. It is the Lord's desire that we be at peace and that we have peace. Let's go on to number four. Listen, it's, it gets even better. Not only does he care for us, but he's compassionate for us. He says in verse number three, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and of your love that you have, have for all the saints. Let me just say this. This is, a, this is somewhat of a, an interesting phrase. It's used in several of the apostles' um, epistles. And oftentimes he just says this, that I pray for you all the time that I'm always praying for you. And the Apostle Paul wants them to know that his heart is with them. It's not just that he cares for them, but that his heart is with them, that he is praying for them constantly, that they are on his heart, they are on his mind, and he is constantly praying for them. It's hard to believe the Apostle Paul was a very, very busy man. He had churches all over, all over the you know, the, the Asia Minor area and other areas. And I mean, he had to minister to, to these places. But Paul's heart was with these people. He tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. he says, apart from these things, there is daily pressures on me by anxiety from all the churches. He says in verse, uh, chapter two and verse four, for I wrote, wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That's the heart of the apostle for the church. That's what his desire was. His desire was for good. His desire was to, to help them, to strengthen them, to walk with them, to encourage them. So when you read the Bible, when you study the Bible, when you hear the word of God preached, know that the heart of God, the heart of God is no less than the heart of the apostle. If you just take all of these things that we're learning about the apostle Paul as he's trying to get you to believe him, know that magnify them by a thousand fold and you start to get close to God's heart. Because Paul was a frail, frail depiction of God, just like all of us are. We don't even get close to touching the character of God. So know that these things about Paul's heart, God's heart is even bigger. So why should we trust him?
because he is compassionate towards us. The last thing this morning is his confidence. He gives us three things about his confidence here in uh, verses four down to verse eight. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of, the, of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. He recognizes three things that Paul had confidence in that were important to his being accepted by them. Number one is he had confidence in God as his provider. Everything that he did, he says this really throughout the book, he talks about being thankful to God, being thankful to God, being thankful to God. All he's saying to the church there, by Paul's being thankful to God, is he's saying to the church, I mean, have you ever thought about that? As you go through life, people just say, yeah, thank the Lord. You ever known anybody that just like everything, everything's like, they're like, why don't you guys just stop thanking the Lord for everything? The apostle Paul wanted them to know that everything that I have is from God. It's just Everything. Everything good in our life, and James 1.17, everything good and everything perfect comes from, it comes from above. Everything good that we have in our life comes from God. And when people know that we know that, it, it, helps them to, it helps them to trust us. So he had God as his provider. He trusted in God as his provider. He trusted in the conversion of these, of these individuals. He refers to them as people who had received the gospel by faith, that they had Love for the saints, which is, note this, it's interesting because he talks about the gospel in three ways. He talks about having faith in Christ, he talks about loving the saints, and he talks about having an eternal hope. It's so interesting because we know that, that salvation is by having faith in Christ, isn't it? But he includes in this statement of the gospel that it's not just having faith in Christ, it's loving your brother, which is a product of having faith in Christ that is necessary. And then he says, he goes to their motivation. He goes to their motivation as being an eternal motivation. To be saved, you can't be seeking temporary things. You must be seeking eternal things. That's what he says is the gospel. The gospel is that you have believed in Christ, you have loved your brother, and you have hope in eternal things. There are many people who come to Christ or come to a gospel, quote unquote, seeking some type of an earthly thing. The Apostle Paul includes in his confidence in their salvation that their motivation for being saved was a pure and eternal motivation. If you think about it, the Apostle Paul is clear throughout all of his epistles that the true hope that we have in salvation, is it a now hope? Or is it a then hope? It's a then hope. Matter of fact, we might we do gain some hope in this life, but in all honesty, for the Christian, this life gets harder. When we the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if your hope is in this life, you are all men most to be pitied. The conversion, he was confident in the conversion. He was confident ultimately in the gospel as being sufficient. 
He says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's go home with a few truths I want to give you in closing to why Paul introduces himself in this way. Number one, God uses people to carry his message and accomplish his purpose. God uses people. The Apostle Paul comes as a minister of God. And we, as Christians, are ministers of God. We are ministers of God. We've been called, we've been commissioned, we've been gifted, we've been equipped, we've been put together so that we can be a body. Why? Because we're to minister for God. Number two, it does matter how God's people act towards those to whom they have been called to minister. It does matter how we... The Apostle Paul has to say, here are the reasons, not just that God has called me here, but here are physical reasons why you should trust my message. Ask yourself this question. The next time you go out and present the gospel to somebody, what physical reasons do you have for them to trust that you're telling them the truth? Does that make sense? The likelihood of them believing that God sent you there as a messenger might be fairly small. But have you a testimony before them that says, I have the truth? It does matter. Number four, God's message and God's messenger should result in their confidence that your message is true. God's message and God's messenger should result in their confidence that your message is true. And then fourthly, while faith is difficult, it is necessary for salvation even when it is delivered through flawed individuals. Trust the truth. God's word is true. God's messengers are flawed, but they come in his authority. Trust that. Trust his word. And as we'll see over the next several weeks, learn to be submissive to it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these um, truths, affirmations, if you will, of um, why we should believe the word, why we should believe the apostle Paul, why should we believe these things enough to to direct our lives by them? Is it, is it really true that if we pattern our lives after this book that, that, Lord, things will ultimately and eternally work out for our good and that in this life will be full of greater purpose and we'll be able to love better and we'll be able to serve better and we'll be selfless and be humble and all of these things a result of being submissive to this book, to your word, to your person. Is that really true? And I think we have discovered this morning through the Apostle Paul's witness of, his, of him as a messenger that it is true. We can believe him. We can trust him. And we can submit to the things that he teaches us because they come from you. Please help us this morning. Please guide us and direct us for your glory and by your grace in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.